We're in week three on our series all about Elijah. Now, last week, Pastor Curry was worried about showing up for the showdown. Oh, he showed up, but he was worried about showing up for the showdown. So how do you think I feel today when I get to preach on the letdown? I'm just hope it's not too much of a letdown today. I don't want to let you down unless letting you down is the goal. And then in that case, mission accomplished. So you might be let down. Maybe you won't be let down. Maybe you'll be lifted up or somewhere in between. But either way, I hope you'll come back next week for next week's message because that message is called the comeback. So you got to come back. Okay? You got to come back. Elijah, the letdown. to remind, to jog your memory from where we are in God's story through his prophet Elijah. Elijah is just off the heels of the showdown against King Ahab and 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, in which he, one lone prophet, representing the one true God, proved in dramatic fashion the truth that the God of Israel is indeed the one true God. For three years, Elijah had prepared for that moment, for God to prove to his wayward people that he alone is God, he alone is worthy of worship. The victory was secured. Elijah was on the mountaintop. But Elijah is about to experience something that you and I have all likely experienced. And it's this. Life's greatest moments are often followed by a letdown. Life's greatest moments are often followed by a letdown. You know those moment, those moments that are like mountaintop experiences, right? Where we reach the summit of the mountain. Victory, hard work is paid off. This is good. The view is better than you could imagine. It's beautiful, but you can't live on the mountain. Sometime you gotta come down either by choice or by force. Life's greatest moments are often followed by a letdown. A couple examples. Who here is already excited for Thanksgiving? There it is. Yeah, my people. Thanksgiving, the best meal of the year. Oh man, the anticipation, right? No matter how excited you are, it's always exceeds expectations. Unless something weird is going on in your kitchen, then you guys can come to my dad's house. He does a great turkey and meal, okay? You look forward to this. You have this meal. Everything is so delicious. A true mountaintop experience. But you overdid it. You overindulged again. And you sit there as your tummy expands and you go, what have I done? And it is a valley type of experience. It is a let down, right? And it takes a while to come down from that mountaintop experience. What about, especially some of you students have experienced this more recently than maybe some of us, you go off on a mission trip or you go to summer camp. Oh man, that's the good stuff. You are fired up. You are pumped up. You are prayed up. You have recommitted a lot of things in your life then you come back, and you've changed, but nothing else has at home. And the, the challenges you left are still facing you when you come back, 
and it, reality hits you hard again, a letdown. Another example, you get married. Amazing! It is so good. Marriage is so good. And then you discover what it's like to live with your spouse. Do you know how much hair I find everywhere from someone who's losing his hair? It's not my hair I'm finding. I approved this with Meg beforehand. Don't worry. Then, maybe you have a kid. You have a kid. Miracle of life. Such a beautiful, sweet little blessing. And you realize within just like a minute that every single parent in the entire world has lied to you. <laughs> Parenting is absurdly hard. No matter how honest people are, they can't do it justice. It is so hard. Why does anyone even have kids? Why, especially after they have one do you ever have another one? I say as a parent of three kids. <laughs> Obviously, they are such a blessing, but it's also a lifelong commitment. Yeah. Take a smaller example. You come to church on Sunday. Powerful worship. You feel built up, inspired. You have, you have worshiped God full. You've been moved by the message, challenged even, and you're ready to set things out for a week ahead, knowing life's troubles will come your way. And you're driving, you're driving, you know, with your family, and you get in an argument with your spouse over what to eat for lunch, and reality comes crashing back down. Life's greatest moments are often followed by a letdown. But God is not absent in the letdown. He has work to do in the letdown. The letdown has a purpose. The letdown has a place. The letdown is not absent from God's grace. No, God is present in that space and he is still doing what God does. Because life will bring us letdowns. But God will never let you down. So let's meet Elijah in his letdown and be reminded once again of God's goodness. We're going to open God's true word. 1 Kings 19 will be going from 1 to 18 in two parts today. So join me in opening your Bibles. It will also be on the screen. 1 Kings 19. Remember, he just had that showdown at Mount Carmel after God sends fire and then sends rain and Elijah kills a hundred in, or excuse me, all 850 of the false prophets. I don't know the logistics of how that went about, uh, but killing 850 prophets, uh, th th there's a lot of logistics to figure out. But then by the power of God and by some really high quality sandals, Elijah runs all the way back to be Ahab to Jezreel to tell what had been done. He wanted the narrative of God's victory to go out first before Ahab had the chance to tell the tale. And we pick up in 1 Kings 19, starting with verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel, she sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Translation, I'm going to kill you. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself, he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came, he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there by his head a cake baked on hot stones, a jar of water. He ate, he drank, and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him, and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And so Elijah arose, he ate, he drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Elijah stands off against the Ahab. He's cared for by God through drought and famine. He is fed by the ravens. Just think about that. Birds feed him. Birds bring him food. Do you think the ravens ever had like an existential crisis of like, am I next? I'm bringing him food. Is he going to eat me too? Just, this is where my brain goes when I read the Bible, okay? <laughs> like, like, yeah, I know. But then God raises a boy back to life through Elijah. This is the first account of someone coming back to life in the Bible. And Elijah was God's instrument to make that happen. And then he boldly stands before the king and 850 prophets so confident in God that as they are trying to call on the false god Baal, he openly mocks them. He calls down fire from heaven. And then he prays seven times. And for the very first time in over three years, the heavens open and the waters come down. And then God grants him like super speed and strength or something, and he goes all the way to Jezreel to tell what God has done. And Jezebel says that he's, she's going to kill him. And all of a sudden, this bold, this courageous, this faith-filled prophet goes, I'm out. <laughs> he's terrified. Terrified. So terrified, he runs for his life. Over and over and over again, Elijah had been the recipient of God's provision and protection. And then this one encounter, and he forgets it all. So how do you go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows just like that? Do you remember two weeks ago, we talked briefly about Obadiah? That he's a complex man, but a relatable man because he faithfully hid 
prophets of God, keeping them safe from Jezebel from killing them, and yet he was terrified of Ahab killing him. He had a line. That was his line. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm serving faithfully, but as soon as that line crossed, he was scared. We all have a line. Elijah, yeah, I love God. I believe in his power, his promises, his, his provision. But after everything I've done for him, after that amazing victory at Mount Carmel, I thought it would all be over. Surely Ahab and Jezebel would, would, would give up after such a clear defeat and a clear, clear display of God's power. And now Jezebel, who's already killed so many other prophets, she's coming for me. And she's angry. And I'm terrified. And yet, we all do this, don't we? Like Elijah, we can look at our lives and we can see how God has been faithful throughout our lives. Time and time again, God's faithfulness has endured. How he has been good. He has secured for us victory over death. And then something happens and we shut him out. I believe, God, you were faithful then, but I just can't see it now. Yeah, you are amazing, God, but I do not see the way here and now. Or even more so, like Elijah, we just forget him. We forget him. We allow our fears and our worries to push God outside of our vision. We all do this. And this is what Elijah did. Elijah, exhausted, defeated, scared for his life, runs as far south into and through the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, he was in the northern kingdom where Ahab is king. He left Ahab's territory, went all the way to the southern tip of Judah. That's about 120 miles from Mount Carmel. It's about a six days journey of walking, but he was probably hauling, so maybe a little shorter. And he had a servant with him during the journey, and then he leaves that servant, and he travels another day's journey into the desert, into the wilderness. If you have echoes of Jesus in the wilderness here, that's appropriate. He went into the wilderness. He sits down. He's all alone. He is sitting under a tree, and he was just plain over it, over it all, afraid of Jezebel killing him. And now, so at his end, he asks God to kill him. He was over it. And he did what a lot of us do when we are over it, which is basically all the wrong things. Uh, Pastor Craig Rochelle, he describes it as a recipe for despair and depression. Just think about Elijah's actions here in this brief passage. First thing he does, he does not take care of himself. He overdoes it. He, 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 sh- he had the showdown. He, he prayed for the rain. He ran to Jezreel. He came 120 miles plus a day's journey, all after three years of faithfully and fervently serving the Lord. What did he need? Scripture shows us soon he needed a nap and he needed a snack. All right? Which 
God provides. He didn't take care of himself. He had been running and working and working and working, not taking care of himself. Then what does he do? He shuts people out. You ever do this? Shuts people out. He leaves his servant behind. He thinks he's all alone when he willingly left someone behind. He isolated himself. And also, do not forget that he had a face-to-face talk with Obadiah who told him, hey, I have hidden these prophets away. They still love and believe in the one true God. And he forgets this. He shuts people out. What else does he do? He focuses on the negative. Anyone like to have little pity parties every now and then, right? We all go there. Look at what it said in verse 4 again. He asked that he might die, and then he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. And then this next line, For I am no better than my fathers. What? No one was asking you about how you're stacking up to your fathers? What? Are you, what? But isn't that what we do when we focus on the negative? Yeah, no no one brought this up. That's self-pity talking. It makes us believe the craziest of lies. Lies, mind you, that come from the enemy. And then what does he do? He forgets God. God had been faithful. We know God will continue to be faithful. But here Elijah says, it is enough, Lord. Meaning, I've had enough, Lord. I can't take any more. To which God says, don't worry, because I'm enough. I am enough. For anything life throws at you, I am enough. Elijah forgot that he was not living out his own story. He is playing an important role within God's grand story. God's story, his path, his plan to redeem the whole world. He thought, Elijah thought he was the one at the center, not God. He lost sight of God's power, of his promise, and his provision which God shows him once more after his first nap by providing him with food and drink. God provides. And yet Elijah was living out this false narrative. He is believing a lie. He's living a false story, believing these things. So the question for us to consider is what lies are you believing? What story are you living Where's your narrative and your perspective of life out of sync with God's story? What lies are you believing? Are you trapped in self-pity? And that's a, no one likes to be stuck in that cycle and that spiral down. Are you there? Are you shutting people out, isolating yourselves? Are you wearing yourself out and not resting in the presence of God? Are you? forgetting God and pushing him out. Friends, there's a better way. There is a better way. And there is hope. And you are not alone. What was the answer for Elijah? How does this all-powerful God care for his servant in this space? He doesn't argue with him. He is not harsh with him. He does not point out all the things he said that are wrong. 
He did not say snap out of it. He meets him in that letdown. He gives him a simple meal. He gives him a word of encouragement. And then Elijah goes for 40 days and 40 nights. What? One meal. This man was at his end. And he just travels for 40 days and 40 nights. Bible uses that term. It's not always specifically 40 days and 40 nights. It's like a significant length of time, okay? But so, so about 40 days and 40 nights. And I, this is what I take from this. This is Kevin's interpretation. God's saying, hey, you thought you had enough? You thought you had enough? Look at how much left you got because I have provided for you. He goes 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the text indicates, obviously, that he's still in his low place. We're about to talk about the cave. He's still in his low place. 40 days and 40 nights in the low place, in the letdown. For those of you who have been there in the valley, you know the valley is rarely brief, and the valley is never easy. 40 days and 40 nights, he carried with him all the things he's feeling. And so he arrives at Mount Horeb. That's another name for Mount Sinai. And anytime that pops up in the Bible, we're reminded that that is the presence of God. For that is where, where Moses met with God, where he gave the Ten Commandments, and it represents, in many ways, the presence of God. So he arrives at Mount Sinai. And we pick up our text from verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave, and he lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God already knows. God knows all. It's a caring question, inviting Elijah to share what he's feeling, to verbalize what he was doing, to name what is going on. Elijah now has been stewing for over a month. And so his response, how many times do you think he's rehearsed this in his mind? You know how you do that. So look at Elijah's response. (laughs) I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They've forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Look at his response again. I have been jealous for the Lord. True. The people have forsaken your covenant. True. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets. True. And I am the only one left. False. There is a lie that he was believing. He owned more responsibility than was ever his. He thought it was all on him, but oh no. It was not. God, again, does not argue with him, does not rebuke him. Look at what he says. Go out. Stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore through the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Oh, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question as before. And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Word for word, same answer as before. And the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Yehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Yehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. If you're wondering the depth of Elijah's despair, depression. We now get to hear his very words on what he is feeling. His greatest fear is being alone and dying. That's probably true for a lot of people. And yet God meets him in the cave. He, he talks with him. He asks Elijah, Elijah, go, stand at the entrance of the cave. But did you notice it is not until the gentle whisper that he moves? Go, stand at the entrance of the cave. He doesn't stand. Elijah, the one, if you remember, who proudly boasts, I stand before the Lord, before Lord God, before whom I stand. He boldly proclaimed, multiple times before. Now God asks him to stand on the mount before the Lord and he doesn't move until that low and gentle whisper. Look again at the text. After that fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, then he wrapped his face in his cloak. Maybe from shame. Maybe to try and hide. Maybe afraid to be seen. Maybe afraid that God would strike him down. We don't know. But then he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. God meets Elijah with gentleness. God has the power to break the mountains, to shake the earth, to send fire here again, just as he did at Mount Carmel. And he also has the power to meet us with gentleness when we are at our lowest. 
He doesn't shame us. He doesn't beat us down. He doesn't give us that earth-shaking sign we all want. But he whispers to us in love. Why is he present in the low, gentle whisper? Why is he present? Why does he whisper? Why does he whisper? He whispers because he is close. God whispers because he is close. God asks him that same question. He is longing for Elijah's answer to be different, but it comes back the same. You can practically sense Elijah's heartbreak in his response, the longing to believe different, but he's just not there yet. And I want to tell you today how he gets through this depression, how his work is not done, but this isn't the comeback. This is the letdown. And the good news is that through God's loving and gentle whisper, Elijah is standing before the Lord once more. Not as proudly and as boldly as before, this time with a cloak wrapped around his face, and yet he stands. And God gives him instructions. He gives him next instructions, and I believe this is really important. Elijah's work is not yet done. He's low, but he is not yet done. He will prepare the way. And God's instructions come seasoned with grace. Elijah, you're not alone. You're you're not alone. First, I'm sending you to these people. And guess what? They're going to continue your work. And your work is not done. But even when your time is done, Elijah, I am still at work. I am up to something. And it is magnificent. And you get to be a part of it. You must now prepare the way for those who come next. And also, besides them, just as a little reminder, there are still 7,000 who believe and remain in Israel. In other words, you are not nearly as alone as you think. And oh, yes, Besides all them, you have me. And I am close. And I am enough. When we are at our lowest, God will meet us with gentleness. It might not be the earth-shaking sign we hope for, but it is more than enough. It is more than enough, for God is more than enough. When God speaks, he creates life. He is present on the mountain, and he is present in the cave. May we posture ourselves to hear that still, small voice. May may we wait on him. May we approach his altar, approach the king. Be quiet to be still, to be expectant because he will never leave you. He says, I am here. I am enough. You are not alone. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It will be all right. I am making all things new and good again. 
And you have work to do, but I will give you power for the journey. Your work is not done, but I will be with you every step of the way. I'm doing a new thing. It will amaze you. I know the end of your story, and I know your place in my story. So come and trust me. I promise you, it will blow you away. Do you get comfort like I do that Elijah, the great biblical hero, has a cave moment, has a cave season? I take comfort from one who was so deeply faithful and faithful that he had a letdown of such significant season. When you're in that place, remember you are not alone. You're not without hope. You're not without hope. Elijah's been there. I've been there. Y'all have been there. But also, God is there with you. Both on the top of the mountain and in the cave. That is our life. A series of peaks and valleys. What does that remind me of? Pulse. Reminds me of a pulse. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be alive. And through it all, God is with us. Through it all, God is enough. Through it all, He is your life and your hope. And He gives you reason to keep moving forward. Through it all, He is close. So close, he left heaven for you. He is so close, he went to the cross for you. So close, he beat death for you. So close that he moved in. The power, the Holy Spirit that lives in those who call him Lord and Savior. If you ever doubt that God is close, simply check your pulse. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? You feel that pulse? You got a pulse? He's with you. He is right here. And guess what? When you die, you'll be even closer because then you're moving into his home. Praise God. Praise God that we are not alone. Praise God that we are oh so loved. Praise God that God has more work for us to do. And he is still with us every step of the journey. May we keep going on, believing, believing, believing that he is right here with us, now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray to the God who hears, the God who loves, the God who is close. Almighty Father, We stand in awe of your love once more. We proclaim once again that you are the one true God, that none can hold a candle to you and your goodness and your power and your majesty, that you alone are worthy of all praise. Lord, And when we open our Bibles and we hear these true accounts from, from which we come from, from our lineage, from your great 
plan and path of redemption. It's easier for us to think that was you then, but where are you now? But God, we, as we pray to you, we profess to you that we know and believe you are the same God. The God of Elijah is the God of Mark and Emily and Grace and Don and Jim and Ron and every single person in this world. We proclaim that you are the same God. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you at your source are love and justice and mercy and our life. So God, we ask that you draw our attention towards you once more to see the work that you are doing in our lives right now because we believe you are up to something. So in our pain, in our sorrows, in our despair, we cry out to you. I ask God that you make us feel in a special way the assurance that you are close. And while we are operating in a way where we look for the big earth-shaking moments, we pray that through your Spirit you quiet us so we may hear that gentle whisper. We need comfort. We need your peace. We need hope. And we profess that it is only found in you. So make a way, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you are doing. We thank you for how incredible you are. And God, we profess that we need you. We need you right here and now. So we will stand boldly on your faithfulness to move forward to the work you have for us, believing in your goodness, believing you are doing a new thing. We love you, God. We pray this in the power of Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.